Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anagreta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. I'm solo again this week with my intrepid colleague, the fabulous Professor Sharon Bessel, working in Scandinavia. In her absence, and for those of us who are missing her, I can highly recommend two remarkable recent pieces from Sharon that have been published in the conversation, reflecting on thoughts and ideas of Australian children and what they would like to see from our society. It's a great read. Listeners will be aware that on Policy Forum Pod, we've shifted our focus in recent time towards systems under strain, exploring important policy areas where there are complex problems that in many cases have been neglected for many years and where there's an urgent need for change and solutions. We've talked about climate change, protecting biodiversity, water and energy security, and over the past three episodes, we've been looking at the Australian healthcare system. I've been working in the system for decades, and I still do with most of my time, yet the depth of the distress and dysfunction was challenging for me. And the need for transformative change is even more important now than ever before. There's so much to do. Of course, Policy Forum Pod aims to foster great discussion and debate about the complex challenges of our time. We're based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The Crawford School is a global leader in training thinkers and leaders who will help address the issues that we discuss regularly on this pod. Visit crawford.anu.edu.au slash study if you want to find out more about the amazing range of degree programs and short courses that are on offer. So to this week, from patient distress, ambulance ramping and access block for serious health conditions to the mental health and well-being of my friends and colleagues, I really did find the series on health system discussions quite confronting. It's been a grim reminder of the need to foster hope and to value care. So this week, I thought we might pause for a brief interruption, a time perhaps to recenter ourselves toward hope and the broad mechanisms for social change to ask how our society is caring for itself and for those around us and for the planet on which we rely. So I've asked a global leader in wellbeing economics and a person with a beautiful model for living democracy, two key elements to transformative change, to join me today in conversation, a conversation about our future. And so I have these two wonderful guests with me today, and I'd love to start by asking them to introduce themselves to the audience. Catherine, can we start with you? Sure. Hello. My name is Catherine Trebek, and I guess I'm an advocate for economic system change, and that's manifested in all sorts of ways. In the last few years, I've been one of the co-founders of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which would be great to talk about, sort of global collaboration of folks working together to change the economic system. And I've just returned from 17 years living in Glasgow in Scotland, back to my hometown of Canberra, and now I'm doing all sorts of little roles here, including a small role with the Centre for Policy Development. I've just joined the University of Edinburgh back in Scotland as a writer-in-residence and a couple of other roles, but they're they're the big ones. Yeah, it's fantastic to have you back in Canberra, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. And beside Catherine is Tim Hollow. Tim, would you mind introducing yourself to an audience who who may, some of whom at least may know you? 
Thanks, Anna Greta. It's lovely to be here with you and Catherine today. So I'm the Executive Director of the Green Institute, which is the Australian Greens think tank. I've also been involved in various ways in environmental advocacy and campaigning and and community activism in all sorts of ways over many, many years. I set up the Campus by Nothing groups and been involved in kind of little libraries and things like that, as well as being... Uh, a campaigner with Greenpeace and an advisor to Christine Norman Parliament and, and a musician. And I've just got my first book out, um, as you mentioned, Living Democracy, an ecological manifesto for the end of the world as we know it. Fantastic. So that may actually be the place to start. Tim, I'm going to use that opening line from your book, Living Democracy, to help us set the scene for the discussion today. Here, at the end of the world as we know it, two very different realities stretch out in front of us. End of the world as we know it. Can you tell us why I think why you think this is the case? What are the challenges that we're facing right now? Mm. Well, I think they're many and varied and, and reasonably obvious in, in some ways. You know, most obviously, I think for many of us, we have the climate and ecological crisis kind of bearing down on us in a way which, for many, feels like the end of the world. And this is kind of one of the key drivers for me in writing this book, my 16-year-old is a very active school striker and I speak to a whole lot of young people quite a lot who are not just deeply distressed about the state of the world but very often you know, extremely depressed and genuinely kind of feeling like this is the end of the world, like there is no real future for them. And that extends in all sorts of ways to to some of the slightly older crowd who might have gone through uni and kind of find themselves at the end of even a master's degree with no serious job opportunities and no possibility find themselves to be able to break into the housing market unless they've got parents who can afford to buy them property. It's, you know, the the challenges and threats to our democratic systems that are growing all over the world, the rise of authoritarianism, neo-fascism in all sorts of, you know, threatening and deeply challenging ways. And in those challenges, in those crises, there is an extraordinary moment, a possibility for change because at the same time, as people are searching for meaning, searching for possibility, people are starting to build a different way of being. There are people all over the world building different models of economic interaction and participation, different models of democratic participation and, and different models of governance, um, new models of, of geopolitical organising, growing, all sorts of extraordinary things. And so, yeah, in this moment where it feels like it could be the end of the world is an opportunity for it to be the end of the world as we know it and a really dramatic transformational shift over the, the years ahead. Catherine, what do you think about Tim's framing, the end of the world as we know it, the, a singular moment in time? Are there other challenges that you'd like to mention? I mean, I think the the way Tim's framed it is, is very powerful because I think the reality is the, the world is going to face massive monumental change that will disrupt people's lives and what they're used to. The question to me that I'm holding is to what extent will that almost be won by disaster and uncontrolled and not on the terms and not in a way that communities would like and people will feel that it's all, that they have no agency, that it's out of control and all the stress and anxiety that come with that and it will be even more unequal and painful for certain groups and the, the less powerful. Or... The choice that I think humanity is facing right now is that they can recognize that business as usual is just not good enough, that the recipes that governments have offered over the last few decades are no longer fit for purpose and we can argue whether they were even ever fit for purpose. And the question is whether do we keep reaching for those recipes and just pressing go on the same old playbook or do we recognise that we are in completely new terrain here? I mean, there was research out this week from scientists who are looking at more and more tipping points being breached. We're seeing scientists warn of, you know, six, six mass extinction loss. But I think one of the words Tim used is people feeling just deeply depressed. And that sense of despair in the future, I think, is one of the scariest dynamics under, under, under sort of really cutting all these multiple crises that humanity is facing because what that means is then people feel there's no point taking action 
And so they either run for the hills and if they're wealthy enough, you know, they might be able to bring them, build their nice eco farms in New Zealand or if they're even wealthier than that, shoot themselves off into space as some of the, you know, the tech billionaires are attempting. Or they're on, you know, the front lines of this crisis that is bearing down on communities, and we've seen that for for decades. And so I think the the question is not whether the same old story is going to just play out in a few more chapters. It's it's whether humanity collectively decides to really recognise the extent of change that's needed and work together in a collaborative positive way to put the sort of the footsteps on that transition journey and making sure that no one is left behind that sort of beautiful phrase from the sustainable development goals say what you might about the sdgs themselves but that beautiful phrase of no one left behind that has to i think be the be the project that we have to you know set ourselves for the, the next next year, the next decade, next century. Starting tomorrow. This is, of course, the reason why I've invited you to to join the, the podcast for this week is to, to inject an overall sense of hope and to give us some roadmaps that might be useful across the wide range of policy challenges that, it's, that we're currently facing. So, Catherine, let's start with economics. It seems to come up as a theme when we talk about any of the major policy challenges. If we talk about climate change or biodiversity preservation, social issues like housing and education, uh, health care, transportation, global trade. How does the way that we think about economics change the way that we seek to address the challenges that we face? How does our conventional model work now? I'm really heartened actually to hear you say that people are talking about the economy as one of the root causes because I I think so often we confine ourselves to looking at the symptoms of an inhumane, unsustainable economic system and putting our shoulder into, I've trained myself over the last two almost two decades living in the UK to say sticking plasters, but now I'm home, I can say band-aids now. So to you know put band-aids on the, that fallout, that collateral damage and sort of that end of pipeline, downstream, almost you know help people and planets survive and cope in the face of that inhumane economic system. And I think what we don't do is what I describe as channel out in a three-year-old enough and ask, but why, but why, but why? We don't look upstream sufficiently to understand that the root cause of so many of the challenges facing the world today is how we've designed our economy, who's winning and who's losing out of it, what sort of business models dominate, so that economic ecosystem, what sort of businesses and enterprises are set up, how we design our cities, what sort of energy systems we have, the tax system, what we subsidise, you know, what sort of rewards we're giving to certain economic behaviours, also production and consumption, how do we have this linear model of, of production where we take and, you know, use and throw it away or are we re- really understanding how we need to create a circular economy? And, of course, at the heart of that is do we see the economy as a goal in its own right? Do we see the economy as something to just grow bigger and bigger and so often that's measured by gross domestic product? Or do we really understand what ecological economists, what feminist economists have been telling us for decades and, of course, what First Nations communities have been living for millennia, this reality that the economy is a subset of society and the two are a subset of nature? And that's that's relatively easy to say. It's really a very profound mindset shift. And I think this idea that we ask more of the economy, we see the economy as in service of those higher order goals of delivering what people on planet really need, rather than us being on hand to just serve those economic goals, is the the change in attitude, the change in approach, and then the change in systems that we need to set about building. Tim, you would like to jump in? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I agree with yeah so much of what Catherine's just been saying. It's it's fantastic to hear it presented in in that beautiful way. Yeah, the the point about the economy being kind of as, uh, something that we're all in service to, and literally often required to sacrifice to. It's like you know we are we are offering human sacrifices to to the god of the economy. So often we're not allowed to to tackle the climate crisis because what will happen with the economy we're, we're not allowed to you know lift welfare so that people can can survive because what will happen to the economy when the economy is 
us. <laughs> the economy is our interactions, the way we the way we exchange goods and services, the way we create, the way we replace, the way we you know, you know, exercise our our humanity together as part of the natural world. Yeah, I you know the 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 kind of the core of my of my book on living democracy is the is about the fact that it has to be democracy has to be participatory it has to be the the living extension of all of us and the same goes for the economy but the economic system that we're living in like our democratic system in many ways is very exclusionary it divides us and conquers us and it's a fundamentally extractive model you know that's you know a different a different way of putting Catherine's point about linear versus circular. You know our economy is fundamentally extracting resources from one place, putting them elsewhere, and, and as part of that, it's it's fundamentally about ownership and and control and coercion. But that's not how humans generally actually like to interact, really. And you know that's the that's the exciting thing for me is that so much of the time when you're actually getting out into the community and seeing how people behave with each other. There's sharing going on. There's gifting going on. People, you know, growing their own food and, and taking home cooked meals down to you know, to people who, you know, live live down the road. Who might be friends or they might be in need. You know, people helping each other with with getting access to to stuff that they might need, repairing goods, all sorts of things like that is actually going on in the economy already. But we don't count it as the economy. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a re-envisioning that's already happening. The question is, can we actually replace? Catherine, I feel like we should just flesh out the issue around GDP and, and the, how our, our neoliberal economic system works at the moment before, before we work out what alternative models might re- replace it. Marilyn Waring uh, on the podcast a couple of years ago and, and just the first 15 minutes of that podcast, listening to her define and explain the history of GDP as a metric uh, was an extraordinary privilege. I, I still go back and listen to it. Can you describe how our economic system works now in you know and and perhaps i think you've already explained a number of the ways in which it's not working for us in terms of contending with the challenges that are faced but what are the parts particularly that you think need to be challenged so essentially to me i you know in a crude way i describe the current setup is what i describe as sort of the long road story so essentially the the first step of that is grow the economy big and so often that comes with turning a blind eye to the collateral damage that that does to people and planet. The next step is to sequester as best we can some tax out of that with all the political machinations and you know you'll know the paradise papers all the tax evasion and avoidance that goes with that so that's problematic and then step three is use those funds to help people and planet cope with with step one and so essentially this is a highly inefficient resource intensive highly damaging way of doing things and then we sort of we the economic fundamentals that, that are used these sort of mainstream economic measures that we assume there's a read across from growing the economy. There's this, you know, more productivity that'll automatically increase living standards. No one ever talks about what's the mechanism underneath that link. They just focus on how do we have more productivity. And there's a similar assumption that if we just grow the economy big, that'll automatically translate to better lives for people. And yet we've got decades of evidence that we can't rely on that process playing out. It, so often growth of the economy has been channeled to those at the very top and it's we can't just keep sort of growing the pie and seeing that as a solution because scientists, and we're seeing the reality of this, that the oven is only so big. So if we're taking the reality of planetary boundaries seriously, we need to start to look for, for different solutions. And that agenda also doesn't recognise the reality of diminishing marginal returns. So this is a you know concept that's familiar in economics but I was explaining it to my my brother recently. It's essentially that if you say go to the markets and you try a little bit of cheese, the, the first bite of cheese is, is fantastic, second bite's good too, third bite's probably brilliant. By the time you're on your 18th or 19th or 20th, you've hit diminishing marginal returns. You're essentially getting less benefit for more incremental additions. And so it is with individual finances and so it is at the macroeconomy. We know that at early stages of economic development, more growth and with these key caveats that it's used well and invested into collective institutions does yield returns in terms of social progress. But those benefits start to tail off and whether you're looking at 
increases in life expectancy, literacy, falls in child mortality, all sorts of, and there's all sorts of measures that I can, I can put for your, your show notes, things like the social progress index or the genuine progress index and a whole lot of other indicators show this, that you get less bang for your buck in the macro economy, the more growth you have. But perhaps even worse than that, what we're seeing is something I mentioned earlier, that so much of that money is now being justified on the grounds that we need it ultimately to repair the damage that's being done. And so we've in this that there's this idea that comes from management literature, but it's been applied to social policy in Scotland at least, and I hope we can start having this conversation in Australia around the extent of failure demand, just how much government resource and, you know, if we're honest, a lot of charitable effort goes with help to help individuals and communities cope with a system that doesn't keep people healthy enough, that doesn't help them feel safe, that doesn't help them feel connected, where they're feeling lonely and anxious, where they don't feel they have a purpose in life. And that shows up with a dollar sign in front of it, whether it's more mental health treatment units, whether it's more prescription drugs, anti-obesity treatments, whether it's more uh, housing benefit because of our dysfunctional housing market, whether it's more security guards because we're scared of each other. And, of course, in environmental terms, people talk about defensive expenditure. And the Insurance Council of Australia has just come out with a report a week or so ago just putting down in paper the extent to which we spend so much money having to repair after floods, after bushfires. And it's just, it's in, on its own terms even. This is an insane way to run run things. And we're, so we're, we're reaching for these wrong, wrong recipes. We're measuring it with these metrics that come out of a completely different era where that are made essentially to measure how monetized a society is. So the more that you, you pay someone to do something rather than rely on a community or the sort of examples that Tim was giving, GDP will go up. But it's consumption orientated. It's blind to distribution. So it doesn't track who's getting that wealth. So the tyranny of averages can offset, you know, profound, profoundly unequal distribution. So we've got sort of outdated compasses, old recipes, and it really does put us back where, where you started this conversation, Anna Greta, in terms of are we going to sort of open up our imaginations to believe that we can create a different journey for humanity with the economy in service of, you know, and the economy being designed in a way to make that journey possible. Catherine, you've just explained the reasons why we've been going through a multitude of systems under strain and your beautiful analogy at the beginning that these that we're treating symptoms, not the underlying cause. That was absolutely superb. But, Tim, I wonder how the politics plays into this. Our political system, is it helping or hindering in how we might make, address these structural changes that, that might, might, might prevent the symptoms in the first place? How are we going with our political change? <laughs> I think we've got exactly the same process going on with our political system at the same time. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that, that was occurring to me as Catherine was, was speaking in terms of the way the economy kind of drives ill health and mental ill health and all of these, all of these deep, deep problems is, you know, such a clear demonstration of the fact that this system is, is in crisis and people can feel it is in crisis. It's not, it's, it's no longer meeting that mythological promise that, that was so key to, to it kind of imposing you know, imposing itself on us through the 50s, 60s and 70s that, that, you know, the rising tide will lift all boats, that will all keep getting um, more prosperous. It's absolutely failing on its own terms, as you say, and seems pretty clear to me that the political system is doing exactly the same. We've had over the last couple of decades an absolute crashing in confidence in our democratic institutions um, in Australia, in Europe, in America, all around the world. It's crashed from you know, supreme confidence, like 80% of people saying, yes, these systems actually are working down to 40% or lower. And it's, re- and it's really clear to people that, you know, our democratic systems and our economic systems are fundamentally intertwined is the other really crucial thing that people are seeing clearly that the reason our democracy is 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 not actually living up to its promise rule by the people is because our 
political leaders are working hand in glove with those with the power on the, their hands on the economic levers. And there's some extraordinary analysis by Martin Gillens and co in, in the US and others all around the world showing how political decisions bear virtually no resemblance to the will of the people, but bear a striking resemblance to the will of the donors um, and the wealthy and the people who are actually able to buy access and influence. And and it's really obvious to people that that's what's going on now. So, yeah, I think I think what we're seeing, what we've seen in the last federal election result, for instance, is is the latest step in a crashing in confidence in the two major parties, which has been tailing down for a couple of decades now and suddenly reached this point where a bunch of grassroots campaigns were able to actually take advantage of that and deliver the biggest crossbench we've ever seen. And so many of these other things happening around the place where, yeah, confidence in the systems, political and economic, is crashing and people are finding there's an opportunity there to do something new. So we are, we're at a moment in time and these two elements of economics and how our politics work, particularly how a democracy is central to, to change, are such important threads that, leave, that weave through all of the challenges that we face. We're going to take a really short break there and we'll be back in just a moment. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Around the world... Democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. I'm here with Catherine Trebek and Tim Hollow. We're talking about the moment in time, a moment in time for policy transition, for social transition, for democratic transition and for economic change. Uh, and before the break, we mapped out uh, the reasons for dysfunction across uh, a number of the challenges that we face, particularly social and environmental and Tim, just before the break, we began to touch on some of the glimmers of hope, perhaps some of the small green shoots that are beginning to emerge from what has been a very destructive period in politics. The recent election, as you mentioned, did see a record number of smaller parties and community-minded independents brought into our federal parliament. Do you think these are the green shoots of hope? Do you see change for policymaking in Australia? I think there's signs that people are starting to make their own hope, put it that way. Hope's a funny word, isn't it? It can be in some ways quite a problematic idea when when we say, you know, in the face of the climate crisis, oh, don't worry, it'll all be okay actually because humans are pretty clever, we'll, we'll work something out. That's not the kind of hope that I think any of us want or need. And same with politics. I don't want to point to the most recent federal election and say, this is reason for hope. I want to point to it and say, this is people actively making their own hope. And that to me is, is the exciting, hopeful stuff about the future. So, you know, what we've seen, as I said, is, is with the crashing in confidence of both of the two major parties in the political system as it exists, the adversarial political system, this, you know, two parties that mostly agree on, on things, but are fighting tooth and nail all the time. People getting fed up with that and starting their own process, whether it be kitchen table conversations or mutual aid programs or however it starts, starting to come together and creating a different political momentum and a different political system through that, whereby the representatives who are getting elected are answerable not to to donors and to you know and to to back rooms but to the grassroots communities that came together to elect them whether they're independents or greens or other minor and micro parties and that presents an extraordinary opportunity 
what I suspect we're going to see from this parliament actually is the refusal of the mainstream political system to actually properly engage with that still and another demonstration of failure which will continue this process of transformation over the next little while. There's there's not a lot of signal, I think, that our press gallery, our major parties, our business community are really grappling with this shift yet and there's a lot more to come. Mm. Catherine, I wonder, particularly given that you've just returned from the United Kingdom, do you have any thoughts on the political changes that you've seen in Australia since you've been away? So it is great to see at least a conversation where the the reality of climate change, of course, so many Australians have been living and feeling for so long, is now being translated into some the beginning tentative and not nearly adequate enough uh, step steps forward. But I, I think also this idea of hope is something that we it's really, really important to hold on to. And I, I, it is hard to feel hopeful given the enormity of change and the urgency of crisis. But where, where I guess I find hope is from what I describe as pioneers who are proving the possible, who are going against the headwinds of current systems and despite all of that are rolling up their sleeves and delivering perhaps in microcosm the sort of change we need to see and, and Tim's point pointed it out at the sort of local community level and I think you know community gardens are a really cracking example of you're prefiguring different modes of provisioning different ways of spending time that's not all about consumption different modes of looking after each other where people are welcomed on the basis of just being fellow humans rather than what they can afford to import but also i see loads and loads of incredible businesses and enterprises who are using the sort of commercial viability not to make lots and lots and lots of profit in an extractive way, but to deliver what communities need or to deliver environmental solutions. And I think that's a conversation that probably the, the rest of the world hasn't hasn't sort of appreciated in Australia. I think there's incredible businesses here that are absolutely part of the solutions. And also I've been really fortunate to to work with people at the heart of government who really recognise that in the 21st century, we need to have a different conversation about this idea of development as some sort of perpetual infinite linear process and who are rolling up their sleeves and, and trying to put collective well-being at the heart of economic policy. And, Anna Greta, you, you mentioned sort of geopolitics at the beginning of our conversation. One of the most hopeful signs there is a tiny little initiative that I was part of instigating a few years ago called the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership. And that's led by Scotland with New Zealand and Iceland. And then during the last few years, Wales, Finland and Canada joined. And so these are diverse countries who are wanting to share and learn from each other what they're doing to broaden their ideas of progress, to support the sort of business models that we need more of in an economy that's aligned with what people and planet need, to really redesign the way government operates, move away from this sort of these silo approach where we pr- pretend that what happens in the education department doesn't impact the health outcomes that where we pretend what happens in your employment is irrelevant to the environment where we actually look across that whole picture and look for co and multiple benefits and and so there's tentative examples and often though think it's a little bit like my my sort of nephew's um, bedroom where there's lots of pieces of jigsaw or lots of pieces of of Lego on the floor, but they're not yet joined up into, into something. Um, and when I when I talk about the sort of change we need to build a wellbeing economy, to you really go of that profound realignment of our economic system so it's in service of what we really need, that idea of the jigsaw puzzle I think is quite, quite important because there are a thousand pieces of changes we're needed, going to need, whether it's in our tax systems, city design, you know, production, consumption, you know, what sort of business models do we want to bring to the fore, all those sorts of things and so on and so on. And I sort of cluster them, you know, like if you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, you start with the corners, don't you? And so often they describe these as the four P's of a wellbeing economy. So the first of those is purpose. You're really taking the, the lens of that 20th century measure of GDP off and all the perverse incentives that come with that and putting collective well-being for you know people and planet at the heart of our government systems at the top of the entry of government measures of progress the political accountability this is things like outcomes budgeting there's talk of a well-being budget coming in we'll, we'll see how that goes in the coming months i'm excited to see that that conversation 
The next one is around prevention, and that's how do we look more upstream, going beyond those just sticking plaster Band-Aid solutions and servicing the failure. How do we take the time to understand the root causes and, and pay attention there? Not to denigrate the survival and coping, that's absolutely important. It's a humanitarian response, but we can't just stay there. We need to also look upstream. The third of these four Ps of the jigsaw puzzle is a bit of a clunky term, but to me a really exciting concept, and that's pre-distribution. So how can we say it's not good enough just to let the gap between rich and poor open up in the first place and then try to slightly reduce it through taxes and welfare? How can we actually design the economy in a way that it generates more equal outcomes in the first place? And there's lots of pieces that you'd have in this corner of your of your jigsaw. It's worker cooperatives, it's true cost accounting, it's things like community wealth building, it's maybe living wages, maybe even we want to have a conversation about maximum wages, at least wage ratios, those sorts of things. And then the final P is people-powered. And this really speaks to what, what Tim's book is about and his whole life work is about, is really putting people at the heart of those decisions decision-making, whether that's through more participatory democracy, citizens' assemblies, participatory budgeting, but also in the economy. So things like economic democracy, so that people are not feeling at the beck and call of wider economic flows, but they're actually able to have agency in economic decisions that matter to them at the firm level or at the wider economy level. Mm. That's a really powerful model. Tim, I'm wondering how we incorporate the environment into the conversations around wellbeing. Um, how does the environment sit with our politics and, and how do we bring environment in, into the, this central conversation around wellbeing as an economic frame? Mm, I think in all sorts of ways. You know, there's there's so much evidence now being being built up from scientific research as as, as if it were needed because we all know it that yeah you know, our own well being is so guided by our contact with the natural world and you know just just finding yourself in in nature you know admiring trees and and birds and you know. That, that gives us a tremendous amount of well-being in our daily lives. You know, we we know now, for instance, that physically getting your hands dirty in the dirt, planting trees, or or you know, planting planting food and, and growing food in your own backyard, is extraordinarily good for your physical and mental health. There are so many ways in, in which it interacts. You know, that's before you even get to the reasonably obvious stuff about clean air and clean water, um, which are obviously the fundamental underpinnings. So yeah, I think it's it's crucial that we do draw into this whole picture the understanding that the economy and democracy and society are, you know, part of the natural world. Everything that we do as humans, is fundamentally part of the natural world and inextricably intertwined with every other part of the natural world. We can't continue to consider ourselves and our economy and our politics as somehow separate. They're entirely reliant on a healthy biosphere. If we don't have a healthy biosphere, we cannot possibly have a healthy economy, a healthy community. Um, and, and I think... Yeah, you know, Catherine started early on talking about you know channeling our inner three year old and saying why 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 this is stuff which is obvious to your average three year old. It, it's so damn obvious, and somehow as we get older in our current system, as we as we grow up, and and you know I don't know, I've lost track of the number of times a, a, a right wing person has told me to grow up and just deal with the world as it is. We're told to stop actually thinking in those terms, and and frankly indulge in this bizarre imaginary system whereby we are separate from nature and can continue to have a healthy economy and society without a healthy natural world. It's totally imaginary. And the reality, yeah, is 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 dawning on a lot of people, I think. Tim, that's really interesting because the, the subtitle of the book I wrote a couple of years ago was Ideas for a Grown-Up Economy. So oh, <laughs> I don't know, yeah. maybe they were bringing you to, to, <laughs> my, to my, read my book. But the, the, the first title was um, The Economics of Arrival and, and essentially the, sort of the essence of it is that that maybe for, for countries like ours or the country I've just moved from, the you know, the UK, that these countries have got enough and what they need to do is allow themselves to say, hey, we've arrived, we need a different different project now and it's not more 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 it's learning to cherish the resources we've got and learn to learning to share the wealth that, that we've got and that's quite a different project 
from from one that's guided by this sense of scarcity and not having enough. And it's a conversation around how, you know, making ourselves at home once we recognize that we've arrived. And that's something I'm feeling really profound, having just come home to Australia and seeing everything anew, but also seeing how incredibly familiar it is, that, that just that contentment of that sense of home and that sense of place that I think, you know, there's something really powerful about making sure that our economy is in sort of really aligned with that security. I mean, in, in a house, people, you, you know, are usually taken care of because of their needs, not because of, you know, what they bring in terms of financial resources. You know, people are not judged by what they're wearing. You know, the first thing you do is when you come in from a day's work is, you know, take off your uncomfortable shoes and wipe off your, your makeup. There's a way you can be yourself. And so that idea of, you know, making yourself at home, you know, ideas for growing off economies is, is really about that. And I think one of the most dangerous images of the last few decades is that sort of early 1990s sustainable development goal image where you had the economy, society, environment as three different pillars seen as equally important and 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 similar to each other in terms of objective and I, and I think one of the essence of the, the well-being economy agenda is just to put the economy back in its place as in service of society individuals communities humanity and equally in service of the planet in its own right too not just for those beautiful well-being outcomes that you you describe but also you know, because nature matters in and of itself. And that's that's also enough reason to take mm-hmm. care of it. So, Catherine, wellbeing metrics are now introduced, as you mentioned, across a number of countries, and and there's a, a, a spectrum, I think, of uh, of engagement in terms of the economics of, of wellbeing and wellbeing economic frameworks. I'm wondering, you mentioned that in Australia, the new federal government has committed to putting wellbeing at the centre of the upcoming federal budget, and there's certainly more conversation around it than there's ever been before. I know the Centre for Policy Development recently released a report, Redefining Progress, which really looks at Australia's response to wellbeing economics, particularly in that global context. How are we doing with our wellbeing and economics compared to global peers? So, I mean, what is exciting is that this isn't new territory. Australia certainly won't be on its own in in this journey. In fact, over half of the OECD countries have multi-dimensional wellbeing frameworks. They count a much wider range of what's important to to people on planet and their citizens than simply the sort of fairly narrow basket of of economic measures on their own and and they contextualise the role of the economy. Does that mean that over half the OECD countries are well on their way to building a wellbeing economy? Absolutely not, because I think this is a conversation we want to pay attention to in Australia as the government does take these really important steps in exploring how to put wellbeing into budgets, how to put wellbeing into policymaking and to the way government is done is that we can't just broaden the basket and the dashboard of what we count and think job done. Fantastic. It's a, it has to be about asking those more fundamental questions about the nature of the economy and going through that mindset shift that we talked about to see the economy in service of those higher order goals rather than the other way around. So it's an absolutely vital, necessary but not sufficient step towards that, towards that journey. I've been really heartened by the conversations I've been having with folks here in Canberra in, in the Treasury in terms of their approach in terms of them recognise that they won't be able to do everything in this first budget, that this will be the start of a conversation and the start of a process. And the good news is for Australia that, as I said, it's not alone. There's lots of other countries that want to go on that journey with them, support them. I'd love to see Australia in the future be part of the wellbeing economy governments, not least as if we can get seven governments as part of WeGo we can then call it the We 7 to challenge the G7 and that might just bring about the sort of shift of geopolitics that we need. I love that idea, absolutely. You've both explained uh, an extra- in, in, in wonderful detail today uh, that how changes to our political process and to our economic system help us to contend with the challenges that we face now and really move to the next era. I, I love that idea of the economics of arrival, Catherine, that's going to stay with me for a while. So as we're drawing this conversation to a close, I wonder, I'd love to hear both of you comment on the interdependent relationship between economics and politics. Can we change one without the other? Do we need both to, to work in concert? I'm happy to start, Tim. I mean, yeah, absolutely not. And I, I sort of refer to myself often as a political economist and I, I use that term because folks who look at the economy 
without looking at power are going to be just just stuck and folks who look at politics without looking at the economy are also not going to see the, the full picture and I think we need to understand how that the economy is about the rules of the game and so often people say well the economy's broken I never use that phrase because I don't think the economy is broken. I think it's absolutely not serving enough people, but it is doing it exactly what it is designed to do. And so this has to be a political conversation in the broadest sense of the term politics. And I think one of the, I think it was Aristotle who said that, you know, politics is the art of living together. And so if we're going to have an economy that enables us to live together healthily, and with the natural world in, in the coming years, we have to look at politics. It's not the be-all and end-all. And I think, as I said earlier, there's a lot of businesses on you know, of their own will doing a lot of things almost also against some of the, the incentive systems that come out of politics. But I think if we're really thinking about redesigning our economy, the way we do politics and what the messages and the p- policy regime that shapes the economy is absolutely fundamental terrain. Yeah, completely agree. You know, both both the the economy and politics are fundamentally about power and how power is currently exercised and how we can shift that. And in my opinion, what it's crucially about is how we can actually dissolve the various modes of coercive power that we have in both our economy and politics intertwined as they currently stand and start to actually create the new grow the, the new from the grassroots up a different a whole different mode of cooperation and 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 power um and that i think is is an exciting model for what's already happening because because so many of of the new alternatives are actually about democratizing the way we live and democratizing the way we do the economy and so they're the same solutions actually you know, they're you know, they're actually bringing in a new way of doing politics and a new way of doing the economy through the same living practices that we can actually bring into being. And as we do that, we can start to actually you know withdraw our consent from the really problematic modes that that are that are creating the crises that we find ourselves in. Um, and that's going to be the crucial piece of the puzzle, I think, as well. That you know, as we build a well-being economy. We actually also have to dismantle the problematic economy, the extractive and destructive economy, in the same way that as we're building a participatory democracy, we're going to have to dismantle the the coercive governing system that's causing the problems. So a time of change, a moment in time, a fork in the road, the opportunity to define our future. Let's finish with one last question, and I have to say I very much want to have the two of you back again in the near future, but what is the number one piece of advice you'd like to give to policymakers uh, faced with the challenges of our time, particularly around putting well-being of ourselves, of each other, and of the planet at the heart of our decision-making? Who'd like to go first? I'm happy to. So, I mean, one, I think if only it was easy, it's just one one piece of advice. Um, This this is a complex, multifaceted change agenda, but we can't let that be overwhelming. And I I think to me it is back to be, be bold enough to not be content just to patch up the current system and to take the time to look upstream and ask, that, that question channeling our inner three-year-old asking, but why, but why, but why, and think about what are the root causes of so many of the crises facing people and planet, and then think about how do we design the rules of the game in a different way to encourage action that prevents harm happening in the first place with the economy helping us get it right first time around. Mm, love it. Um, if, <laughs> agree with Catherine. If only there were one answer. If there were one thing that I had to say, it's get up from your desk and go and talk to people. To me, this is you know one of the fundamental issues that we have in so many parts of our governing systems, our democracies, our economies, is that um, those who are making decisions are really completely disconnected from what's actually going on on the ground to an extraordinary degree. And if you actually sit down and have conversations with people out in the community, if you go to their doors and chat to them, if you if you go and you know, have a meal or, or, or wander around a you know a shopping centre or a market and talk to people, you'll find so many ideas and so much you know direction for a different way of thinking and a different way of doing. Get up from your desk and talk to people. 
That is superb advice to leave today's conversation. Thank you so much for your time, Catherine Trebek and Tim Hollow. Thank you. Such a pleasure. So I feel better. Talking with Tim and Catherine today does give me hope. I was particularly struck by Catherine's framing that many of the policy challenges that we discuss are symptoms of much deeper structural dysfunction and that there are ways in which we can unpack the current way that we live and the way that we care for each other, which will address not just one problem, but help us to contend with the range of challenges that we discuss. Her argument for a transition to wellbeing economics is a compelling one. It does remind me that economics is a tool for shaping social decision-making and is a tool into which we should have great influence through our democracy. The compelling part of the conversation today was both the two elements separately, democracy and how better representation uh, changes our decision-making, and our economic decisions and the economic framework and how changes to our prioritisation and changes to our economic structures might lead to better outcomes for all of us. These two threads exist in isolation and yet they're highly codependent. And I think Catherine made a compelling argument for the economics of politics and for the politics of economics being so deeply intertwined. These two great thinkers today offer me an extraordinary framework for transformative change. And this conversation is one I know I will return to many times in the months and in the years ahead a glimmer of hope, those green shoots for change, uh, offering us hope during highly uncertain and challenging times. So we will leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes. We love hearing from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at AEPPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum. You can send us an email at podcast at policyforum.net or you can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod. I'm so much looking forward to continuing into our conversations of systems under strain. And so from me, Anna Greta Hunter, I look forward to seeing you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.